Blog Talk Radio. and starting yourself right and now that I have the lesson from John MacArthur, The Love That Forgets here on Truth Be Told Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace To You. If you've never contacted Grace To You, we'd like to send you a free booklet by John called Is It Real? It's all about helping you answer the vital question, is my salvation the real thing? Request your free booklet by writing to real at gty.org. That's real at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through June of 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. We come now to the Word of God, the Scripture, and I ask you to open your Bible to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. We are 
working our way through Ephesians and find ourselves at chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And this becomes for us a high point. That's hard to say with regard to Ephesians because everything seems like a high point. But this is indeed a high point. I want to read the opening seven verses of chapter 5 for you, though we'll only cover the first two. At least you'll have them in mind. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them." This uh, wonderful passage begins in the clouds. It begins in the lofty heavenly stratosphere of being imitators of God. And it ends down on earth with the sinful lists that are provided for us, which we are to avoid, that lead finally, as verse 6 says, to the wrath of God. And again, we are reminded that we are to have no part with that. And that is a theme all through the book of Ephesians. We saw that, didn't we, back in chapter 4 and verse 22. If you are a believer in Christ, you had a former life, but you laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. You were renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is the very main thrust of this wonderful epistle. And I've been pointing you back to chapter 2, verse 10. We are, as those who have been saved, the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We've been learning from the book of Ephesians that salvation is a total transformation. It is complete change. It is going 180 degrees in the opposite direction. It is ceasing to be under the authority and power of Satan, as it tells us in the beginning of chapter 2, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. It ceases to be that, and instead of walking in the power of Satan, chapter 3 ends with verse 19 saying, we now can be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's how dramatic the transformation is. And again, this seems to be a question asked so many, many times. How do I know I am a true Christian? And we've learned the answers very clearly through the book of Ephesians, and we'll see it again this morning. 
Now, we are called to something in verse 1 of chapter 5 that may on its surface seem like too high a standard. Notice verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Since we are His loved children, since He loved us enough to make us His children, and since as a result of that we have become partakers of the divine nature, that's what Peter says, we have become partakers of the divine nature, we have the capacity now to imitate God, and in one particular way, walking in love. Walking in love. So we're going to talk about walking in love. This is the high point of the Christian's calling. Now we know back in chapter 4, verse 1, we were called to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And we are to walk in humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. So again, we don't get very far into the worthy walk until we run into this idea of loving people with a love that can be defined as tolerance. But it's defined even more directly here in this section, chapter 5, because we are to walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So now we understand love as more than just tolerance. We understand love as sacrifice. And it doesn't even stop there. If you go back to the end of chapter 4, love is defined even further. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and here's the high point, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So I want you to understand today, this is the foundational truth that we're dealing with. You can imitate God in the sense that your love is at its highest point a forgiving love. I want you to connect that love with the reality of forgiveness. If you're going to be like God, you're going to have to be forgiving. And if you're going to be like God, you're going to have to be all forgiving, comprehensively forgiving full of mercy, full of grace, full of compassion, full of forgiveness. At first, it might seem like it's asking way too much for us to be like God. But the Bible doesn't back down with that at all. In fact, when we're told to be imitators of God, we're immediately drawn to what Peter said. Listen to these words, 1 Peter 1.15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You think the standard is high in terms of loving. It's high also in terms of holiness. Let me read that again. Be like the Holy One who called you. That's God Himself. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Where is that written? Back in the book of Leviticus in a number of places, but you can check out chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. Even in the Pentateuch, God was saying, I want you to be holy 
as I am holy. We are called on to be like God. This is the unattainable and yet necessary standard for the Christian life. But in order to capture exactly what Paul is driving at, he doesn't expect us to be like God in creative power. He doesn't expect us to be like God in immutability because we are ever-changing. He is not. He doesn't expect us to be like God in omnipresence. We're bounded by time and space. He doesn't expect us to be like God in omnipotence, all-powerful. He doesn't expect us to be like God as omniscient with all knowledge and all wisdom. But what he is saying here is that we are to be like God, manifestly his beloved children, by loving the way God loved. And the foundation of God's love is forgiveness. You never will receive any of the gifts of God's love unless you have first received his forgiveness. And that forgiveness is available to us in Christ. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God love, God's love takes us to the cross and to Christ and faith in Him and salvation. And then God's love lavishes on us total and complete, comprehensive and everlasting forgiveness for all our sins. And that is why verse 32 ends that you are to be just as God in Christ forgave you forgiving others. In that sense, you are to be an imitator of God. In the sense that you love as Christ loved, who gave Himself up as an offering and a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. So in this sense, we can follow God as our example. In fact, the word imitators there is mimetai in the Greek. It's mimics. Again, we can't mimic God in those incommunicable attributes that belong only to Him as the eternally existent One. But we are called here to mimic God, to pattern our lives after God in the realm of sacrificial forgiveness. God is love, and that love foundationally is brought to us in the matter of forgiveness. All other expressions of His love proceed out of that forgiveness. When you think about all that is ours because God has forgiven us, it's what we've looked at in the first four chapters. In fact, the first three chapters emphasized all of this. What, what did God give us when He forgave us? What did He give us when we were saved by grace through faith? He gave us a new standing before Himself. We are declared righteous, declared just, and His righteousness is credited to us. He declared that we have new life. We have regeneration. We have been born again. We are new creations. We have a new righteousness in terms of our conduct. We have been converted. We aren't what we used to be. Old things pass away. New things come. We have a new Father, no longer the devil but God Himself. We have a new inheritance, no longer the wrath of God, but the eternal blessing of God. We have a new citizenship, no longer citizens of the kingdom of darkness, but citizens of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven. We have a new master. We have a new freedom, freedom from condemnation, freedom 
from sin's dominating power. We have a new security. We are kept safe by the granting of eternal life to us, which is secured by the ever-present Holy Spirit. We have a new peace, not a peace like the world knows, but a peace that is everlasting. We have a new union with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and every other believer. We are part of a new fellowship, the redeemed church. We have a new heavenly joy. We have a new spirit in us. We have a new heart. We have new spiritual power. We have new ability to serve God. We have a new calling, a high and holy calling. We have a new purpose and we have a new love. And I want you to focus on this idea of love because it really is the pinnacle of all that is ours in Christ, all that is ours because we are God's and God is ours. And I would draw you back to 1 John, which I read a few moments ago, just to refresh you in that fourth chapter. That was a long extended portion basically saying that unless this love is manifest in you, God is not in you. And on the other hand, if God is in you, this love will be manifest. Go back to verse 7 of 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And again, how did God manifest that love? He sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, the love of God is most clearly and magnanimously and extensively manifest to humanity in the love that forgives sinners. We have been forgiven of all of our sins. All of them. That forgiveness is an expression of God's love. It's not something we earned. It's something He gives freely to those who come to Him. That is where your relationship with God started. It started in the delivery of heavenly blessings with forgiveness. That's where it all really began. Back in chapter 2, verse 4, God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Staggering reality. God forgives us so that He can lavish us with His love everlastingly. So when the Apostle Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, he is really telling us that our lives need to be marked by forgiveness. Forgiveness. I want this message this morning to communicate that to you. You know, Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. And that would be true about all biblical instruction. When you're instructed in the Word of God, the end game for that instruction is not 
that you know doctrine. The end is that you love the way God loves. That's the goal of our instruction. And you may speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if you don't have love, you're nothing but a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal, 1 Corinthians 13 said. Love is everything. There is faith and there is hope, Paul said in that same chapter, and there is love. But the greatest of these is what? Is love. So with this opening of chapter 5, we come to the main issue in your life as a Christian. Love. Love. And love that is basically defined by its eagerness and its willingness to forgive. If you want the greatest expression of love, you only need to listen to the words of Jesus. It's not sentiment. It's sacrifice. Listen to John 15:13. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. The greatest act of love possible is complete self-sacrifice, even giving your life, if necessary, in death for someone else. Now, none of us have done that, or your funeral would already have taken place, but you're here. This is an extreme kind of love that reaches out to someone who is not perfect, someone who is not deserving, and says, I will give my life for you. I will die that you might live. That is essentially what Christ did. Romans tells us in chapter 5 that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the call to that kind of love. The love that forgives, as verse 32 says, as God in Christ has forgiven you. 1 John 2.12 puts it this way. Your sins have been forgiven. And then it says, for His name's sake. It really, in the, in the primary sense, isn't for you, although you're a beneficiary of it. It's for the fame of God. It's for the glory of God. He forgives sin to put His grace on display, to put His mercy on display, to put His compassion on display, to put His love on display, and to put it on display everlastingly throughout all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth we will, along with the redeemed of all the ages and the holy angels, praise God endlessly and eternally for His forgiveness. For His forgiveness. The point is simple. You can't love like God unless you are marked by forgiveness. Unless, if you want to be like God, you act toward people who offend you the way God acts toward people who offended Him. Jesus said in Luke 6 that you need to show mercy as your Father in heaven showed mercy. This is the characteristic of God that Paul is driving at. This kind of love is so extensive. Go to the end of chapter 3, at least down to verse 17. But trying to get a grip on it is hard. But Paul prays for the believers to be rooted and grounded in love. This is the foundation of everything in your Christian life. To be rooted and grounded in love, 
and able to comprehend with all the saints. This should be the universal understanding of all true believers. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Amazing statement. Paul prays that believers would understand the entire range of divine love, which is beyond comprehension. How can we know something that's incomprehensible to know? Well, we can to the degree that the Spirit of God instructs us. But here's the remarkable thing about verse 19. When you come to understand that love, that love that surpasses knowledge, you can be filled up to all the fullness of God. So if you're going to be an imitator of God, then you need to be characterized by that which is most definitive of God, and that is His love that forgives. And if you have that same love and understand it in its fullness, you can be filled up to all the fullness of God. You want to be like God? You want to be as God is? You want to be as a beloved child who can bear the name of the Lord and demonstrate that you belong to that Lord and that you manifest part of His essential nature? Then you have to love the way He loved. And if you love the way He loved, you are experiencing the fullness of God. Those are just beyond comprehension kinds of promises and realities. I mean, here we are groveling in the humanity of our fallenness and we're just grateful to sort of crawl out of the muck and have the Lord save us and forgive us and bring us to Himself. And He's not satisfied with that at all. He wants us to come all the way to the place where we literally become imitators of God. And in particular, we love the way He loves. In 1 Peter 4, 8, the Apostle Peter was speaking of this very reality, and he says, Above all, this is again, this is the priority in the Christian life. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Fervent ectenes. It's used of a muscle that is completely stretched to its maximum limit. Reach as far as you possibly can to love one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. So this love we're talking about is the kind of love that covers sin. It's the kind of love that forgives. By the way, Peter is borrowing language from Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12, which says, love covers all transgressions. This is pretty practical. Because we're all going to be offended, right? We're, we're all going to be treated unkindly, unfairly. We may be slandered. We may be abused. So what should be our response? Vengeance? Retaliation? Anger? Hostility? No. No. Those things were laid out for us as things to be avoided back in chapter 4, verse 31. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Put it all away. And give back kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness the same way God in Christ forgave you. If you're in Christ, God doesn't hold your sin against you. He completely forgives it. 
This is so evidently missing in our world. This has got to be the most angry, hostile, hating, vicious, destructive culture perhaps since uh, days of paganism before Christ even arrived on earth. Everybody wants to destroy everybody else. And it finds its way into the church, the professing church, which then becomes self-destructive. And our Lord gives us a completely different direction. I want you to love each other the way I love you. And how do I love you? I forgive you all your trespasses constantly, every day. Peter said, how many times shall I forgive? Seven. The Lord said, 70 times seven. Endlessly. Non-stop. Forgiveness is what defines our love. That's what defines it. It's not about being sentimental. It's not about loving someone with some kind of an emotional attachment. It's about loving your enemies. Matthew 5, Jesus said this, you're never more like the Father than when you forgive your enemies. Did you get that? You're never more like the Father than when you forgive your enemies. And Jesus in Matthew 18 told that familiar story about the man who owed the unpayable debt. And Jesus developed that parable in hyperbole so that the debt was ridiculous. It never could have been paid by anyone. But the man came and pled with his authority, and he was given complete forgiveness. Then he went out, you remember the story, Matthew 18, found a guy who owed him a minor amount and strangled him and threw him in prison. And the anger of the friends of that man reached a point where they actually brought him in for such hypocrisy that he would receive such comprehensive and extensive love and couldn't give lesser love to someone else. God's beloved children are to be like Him. Imitating Him. And what does that mean? Imitating Him in forgiveness, self-sacrifice. This is the issue here. If you want to imitate God, then you have to be forgiving. Whatever the offense, whatever the slander, whatever the maligning attack on you, whatever inequity and unfairness, whatever abuse may have come your way, whatever it is, you leave the results to God. Vengeance is His. He will repay. He takes care of all those accounts. And you offer what He gave you. And that is complete forgiveness. Anyway, this is a hard, hard message for our culture today. And I'll tell you why. For 2,000 years, essentially, we have had Christian influence since Jesus came. For 2,000 years... Christianity has had a moral influence on the Western world. And uh, pr pretty much for 2,000 years, the uh, principles of New Testament morality have uh, ordered society in our world. Uh, one way to illustrate that is that for the most part over those 2,000 years, homosexuality in the Western part of the world has been seen as a destructive and, and very dangerous and deadly kind of sin. And culture after culture in the Western world have dealt with it as a destructive sin. We, who were a few years ago in a post-Christian society, all of a sudden arrived at um, 2015, and the Supreme Court allowed homosexual marriage. And at that point, that was the final nail in the coffin, and that was the death of Western culture. It had given up all of its Christian morality. And with that went a whole lot of other virtues. 
And not only was evil unleashed, it's manifesting itself in the bizarre transgender aspects of homosexuality, but hate has been unleashed in the world at a level that we've never seen it in our society. 2,000 years have gone by. We are not in a post-Christian world. We're in a neo-paganistic world. We're back to living like the Romans and the Greeks, who tolerated all those kinds of sins that Christianity had a positive impact in eliminating. So this is paganism that we're dealing with today. But that kind of pagan world that we are now living in was the very same world that the New Testament Christians were living in. And they needed to be in the midst of a hating, vicious, wicked world. And you can read the iniquities of that world are the same as the iniquities of this world. It's as if 2,000 years of Christian history never happened. But at the same time, they were called to express to the people in their world, in a fallen world, forgiveness, because that's what God gave them. You might think that trying to be like God is is really impossible, and there are aspects of it that are impossible. But I want to show you an illustration of that. Turn to the book of Job, if you will. A couple of portions of Scripture there. Job chapter 11. There's a lot of uh, sort of inept advice being given to Job by his friends, trying to explain his suffering. And we hear Zophar speaking in chapter 11. And he asks some good questions in verses 7 and 8. He says, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? So can you go down to the the depths of God? Can you go down to the depths of God? Can you go out to the perimeter of God? No, they're, they're as high as the heavens. And what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you do? I mean, trying to grasp God too deep, too high. In chapter 21, there is a further discussion of this. In verse 14, Job says about people in general, they say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what would we gain if we entreat Him? Basically, you can't know God, and on top of that, you have no interest in knowing God. Over in chapter 26, and uh, Dr. Chow commented on this particular portion last Sunday morning. Chapter 26 Job responds, and in verse 7, he speaks about God, and he says he stretches out the north over empty space. That's mind-boggling, the infinity of space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his clouds over it. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters. That's the horizon as a boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at His rebuke. He quieted the sea with His power, and by His understanding He shattered Rahab. By His breath the heavens are cleared, and His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. 
Behold, these are the fringes of His ways. And how faint a word we hear of Him. But His mighty thunder, who can understand? Even when we look into the creation, the massive realities of creation, we're, we're really only talking about the fringes of His ways. So how can we grasp God? But when you come to the end of the book of Job, chapter 42, I want you to look at something. Something has taken place. Job answers the Lord. And he says in chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Job is saying, up to now, I've been talking about things that I don't understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. What Job saw there was the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the lavish grace of God, and that took Job from saying, I heard about you, and now I see you. God becomes clear in His mercy. God becomes clear in His lavish grace. God becomes clear in the expressions of His vast, incomprehensible love. Now, I know that there's a paradox in this because you feel like if you're coming into the presence of God, you should uh, maybe act like Peter did when he was in the presence of the Creator and said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Or maybe you feel like John in the vision of Revelation chapter 1 where he sees Christ and he says, I fell at His feet like a dead man. Maybe you feel like Isaiah in chapter 6 who coming into the presence of God said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. There is that reality that we are in awe of God and that the fear of God is necessary. But at the same time that we are in awe of His holiness, we can mimic His love. Job is saying, for the first time, I see it. You are so forgiving. You are so lavish in your generosity. So much mercy. That's where you see the love of God. And you've seen it. You've seen it if you're a believer. You've seen it. He loved us. And because He loved us, He forgave us. And that forgiveness is eternal. And to seal that forgiveness, He placed in us the Holy Spirit, the seal of promise, chapter 1 says. The Spirit took up residence in us. The Son took up residence in us. The Father takes up residence in us. We've been singing about the triune God. And every true believer is in union with the triune God. So we come 
into His presence as knowing we are broken and come with contrite hearts and come mourning over our sinfulness, come meekly, come humbly, coming for grace, but at the same time, knowing that He will forgive all our transgressions. And we have offended Him over and over and over. Not a day goes by that there is not some offense against God that He willingly, lovingly, graciously forgives. This is what calls us to love. It is divine forgiveness. And that's what the rest of the opening two verses say. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's walking in love that is sacrificial. You know, I've uh, been thinking about 1 Corinthians 16, 13 a lot. Um, that verse is an important one for us in these days because it calls for all of us as believers to be strong. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Very strong language. Be on the alert. That's watching for any attack, any assault on the truth, on the people of God, on the Lord Himself. Stand firm in the faith, unwavering in your convictions in sound doctrine. Act like men. That means fortitude, courage. Fight the battle. Be strong. But immediately, in the next verse, the Holy Spirit says, let all that you do be done in love. There, there are plenty of people who get the 13th verse. They, they want to stand firm in the faith. They, they want to create a, a website and make sure that they line up all their guns and fire them at everybody who deviates one inch from what their expected course should be. Everything has to be tempered. Everything, even the battle for the truth, has to be tempered with love. We do everything that we do in love. And what does that mean? It means that our love calls for us to be forgiving. To be forgiving. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, love is the fulfilling of the whole law. Love is the fulfilling of the whole law. I mean, if you love God, you won't have other gods. If you love God, you won't make an idol. If you love God, you won't take His name in vain. If you love God, you won't disobey Him. If you love God, you'll worship Him. The second half of the Ten Commandments have to do with man. If you love others, you're, you're not going to harm them. Paul makes it very clear. It's this simple. Listen to his language in Romans 13. He lays out the second half of the Decalogue. Verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. That's your debt. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you love somebody, you don't commit adultery. If you love someone, you don't kill them. If you love someone, you don't steal from them. If you love someone, you don't covet what they possess. You don't harm people that you love. You do the opposite. You sacrifice for them. You forgive them. Love fulfills everything. Love is the pinnacle. Walk in love. What do you mean? With forgiveness and eager self-sacrifice. Look at verse 2 for just a few moments as we kind of wrap up. Just as Christ loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's just beautiful language. When Christ went to the cross um, and He was being the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, this was not... This was not something that displeased God. This was not something that was noxious to God. Parts of it are. Elements of it are. But in the sacrifice of Christ, as an offering and a sacrifice to God in the place of sinners, this gave a fragrant aroma. Let me, let me tell you where that language is coming from. It's really coming from the book of Leviticus. When you start the book of Leviticus and the sacrifices are laid out in the first five chapters, you have three sacrifices in Leviticus 1 to 3. You have described the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the peace offering. And those three offerings were basically put on the altar and they gave a fragrance. The burnt offering pictured Christ in His complete devotion to God. Think of it that way. We're not talking about sin at this point. We're, we're saying that the, the burnt offering demonstrated the willingness of the Lamb of God in complete devotion to God to give up His entire life. That was a sweet-smelling fragrance to God. That is the very essence of love. Love at its highest point is not only willing to forgive, it is willing to sacrifice itself to effect that forgiveness. Complete devotion to God is seen in that burnt offering. In the meal offering, you see Christ's perfection, the perfection of His character, which also is a fragrance to God. He was holy, harmless, undefiled. He was the Lamb of God without sin. In the peace offering, which also sent forth an aroma that pleased God, He is making peace between sinners and God. So in the burnt offering and the meal offering and the peace offering, there's a sweet aroma. So even in those offerings in Leviticus, you see that there were aspects of the death of Christ that were a fragrance to God. His devotion, the perfection of His character, and His making peace. Those are the things that we can follow. We'll never be somebody's sin offering. We'll never be somebody's trespass offering. But we can be, as Christ was, so devoted to God, so committed in our character to Christ's likeness, that we are the ones who make peace with sinners. This is what it means to love. 
It's really all about forgiveness. It would be wonderful, you know, if this passage stopped right there, verse 2. But it strangely changes. And all of a sudden in verse 3 you read, but immorality, impurity, greed. What, what is all of that? If God's love, Christ's love, and our love is self-sacrificing and forgiving, you can be sure Satan will pervert that and the love of the world will be selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent, lustful, and destructive. That's why the contrast. That's why verse 7 says you don't partake with the world. How has the church managed to absorb the loveless attitudes of the world? It's tragic. Tragic. We have to be, we have to be the children of God in the world. We have to adorn the doctrine of God. We have to be like our Father, and no one is more like God than when he or she forgives. So we're back to where we started. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. And how do we know that love? We know it because it is lavishly, unendingly forgiving. It's verse 31, never bitter, never wrathful, never angry, never clamorous, never slanderous, never has any malice. It's kind tender-hearted, and forgiving. So when we talk about this kind of love, again, just to emphasize what I said at the beginning, we're not talking about some kind of sentimental feeling. We're talking about expressions of forgiveness that define us. That's the love that the world needs to see. And I am sad to say they are not seeing it in the professing church of Christ. May they see it in us. We can only reach as far as we can reach, right? But we can be known by that kind of love. May it be so. Father, we thank You for Your truth. Thank You for this particular Word because it is so clear, so direct, so practical. And I pray, Lord, that You will help us to remember that if we walk in the Spirit, we'll see the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Which is love. And then joy, and then peace, and the rest. May we be known by our love. A love that lavishly and unendingly forgives. Anything less than that for us who have been forgiven an unpayable debt is a sin worthy of heaven's discipline. If there's any forgiveness toward unforgiveness toward anyone in our hearts, Lord, we confess that, we repent of that, we ask that You would remove it. And may we 
reach toward the Blessed Holy Spirit and walking in His strength, may we be characterized by the fruit of love. May we leave a fragrance, a sweet aroma of love everywhere we go. No matter what is coming at us, And in so doing, be your beloved children. That's our prayer. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Same evidence, different interpretations. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for God's Word and the Gospel. We often hear the claim, even from TV personality Bill Nye, that creationists can't be scientists because they reject evolution. This is ridiculous. Many well-educated creation scientists of the past and present would agree with me. Creationists and evolutionists study the same evidence, the same Earth, same fossils, same universe but they come to completely different conclusions because of their very different starting points. Evolutionists start with millions of years of change from one kind into another, and they interpret what they see through that lens. But creationists start with the history through the lens of God's Word. It's the same evidence, different interpretations. Discover more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to our website at AnswersRadio.com. Ready? Okay! Love, joy, peace, wake the sky!
It's a spiritual problem. This is Ken Ham, and our 510-foot-long Noah's Ark is located in northern Kentucky. The Bible tells us that God is clearly seen in what he's made. Since it's so obvious there's a creator, why aren't more scientists creationists? Well, consider this. From childhood, people are indoctrinated to see through the worldview lens of evolution and millions of years. And those who don't think this way, they're ridiculed. Also, most evolutionists have never read creationist writings. They have no idea what we actually believe because they've not done any research. And remember, ultimately, it's a spiritual problem. Unbelievers are blind and love darkness rather than light. Simple humans just don't want to acknowledge their creator. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com and view a complete transcript of this episode at AnswersRadio.com. All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lessons, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. of the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you sure going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints have their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. I wasn't good enough, no way. 
Creation Research? This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, The Ark Encounter, and The Creation Museum. Do creationists do scientific research? Absolutely. In fact, there are many creation scientists who work alongside evolutionists, studying everything from bacteria to physics. You know, most of the time, science has nothing to do with evolution. It's just observational science, which involves testing and observing. Now, what about historical science? Well, you can't directly test and observe the past. So this is where evolutionists and creationists disagree. Many creationists study created animal kinds, astronomy or geology to learn more about what happened in the past. The difference, though, is this. Creation scientists start with God's infallible word. Learn more about science, the Bible, creation, and evolution when you go to AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive daily emails from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
science founded on the Bible. This is Ken Ham, author of the new family commentary on Genesis, Creation to Babel. This week we're looking at the common claim that creationists can't be real scientists. It's what Bill Nye claimed during our debate. But science was actually founded on a biblical worldview. Many of the greatest scientists of history started with God's word. You see, they believed that since an orderly, consistent God created the world, it should be, well, orderly and consistent. This meant that they could study it to learn more about God and what he's made. Yes, modern science came out of a biblical worldview. And here's just a few famous scientists who were all creationists. Sir Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, and Gregoire Mendel. Yes, God's Word is true. Discover answers when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and find hundreds of programs just like this one when you go to our website, AnswersRadio.com.
Creationists make great scientists. This is Ken Ham, editor of the eye-opening book Glasshouse, Shattering the Myth of the Evolution. Have you ever heard of an MRI scanner? Well, you probably have. This technology has saved countless lives since being invented in the late 1970s. But did you know the inventor is a biblical creationist? Dr. Raymond Damadian is a brilliant scientist whose research has helped doctors diagnose patients without needing to cut them open. And he publicly gives all the credit for his invention to God. Dr. Damadian is just one of many scientists who start with God's word. You don't have to believe in millions of years of naturalistic processes to be a scientist. This is a philosophical, not a scientific idea. Creationists do make great scientists. There's so much more to discover when you visit our fat-filled website at AnswersRadio.com. Find answers to your questions and receive encouragement at AnswersRadio.com. When I was in the New Age, I identified as Christian, but my theology was garbage. One of the major issues I had, though, was why there were so many Christian denominations. I did not understand what they all taught. And random fun fact, this question about denominations was actually the question that drove me to start researching other religions after I had my first child in 2000. How old is she? Hold on. I'm a good mom. Most days. She was born in 2010. When she was a little older, two nice Jehovah's Witnesses showed up at my door in 2011, which was actually the catalyst for me getting out of the New Age. That is a whole other topic which I cover in my testimony video, which will be in the description for those who are curious. During this time, though, when I was dabbling in New Age garbage, um, one of the most appealing things to me was the idea that we were all one. It did not matter what you believed because there were many paths to salvation and to God. I was curious about denominations, but your denomination or religion did not matter to me. Your view of him or her was perfectly fine. My reasoning for why there were different denominations was simply because people had a different style or preference on how they worshipped or believed in God. Little did I know. Even though I had become a Christian at 16 and I had accepted the simplicity of the gospel, I had no theological discernment. I didn't understand that there were essentials to Christianity, salvific essentials. This would have explained a lot about different denominations at the time. So I'm going to go over this today of what defines the Christian faith in the salvific essential doctrinal Sense. Those were a lot of fancy words. And guys, before I even get into this, let me just let me just put my tea down, put down yours too. I'm not going to go out into the weeds and discuss non-essential stuff, like what music to play at church, or gasp, Calvinism, eschatology, speaking in tongues, or other in-house discussions. I'm talking about, again, salvific faith, the essential doctrines that were established by Jesus and his disciples and was preached by the disciples as the gospel message that brought salvation. There are other aspects to Christian life and beliefs that matter deeply, but we can still be in error about these things and not have it affect our salvation. Some of this stuff is very black and white. Some of it isn't. But that's why I'm not going to go play out in the weeds. I want to talk about the meat that makes 
the gospel message unique? What makes Jesus unique from every other belief system and religion in the world? In fact, I'm positive that many of you watching can attest to this as well, because I'm pretty sure that none of us understood a lot about good theology and what it was when we accepted the gospel. And it took time. And in my case, I believed by faith first before I understood a lot of good proper theology. Sanctification happens after you become saved, not before. So let's get into it. First, I want to point out that there are denominations that call themselves Christians that are not Christian at all. They deny these essentials of Christianity. Now, what are these essentials that I keep bringing up? I like to describe what I mean by this by using a vegan cookbook as an illustration. I'm an ex-New Ager. I, I, I knew a lot of vegans. And Being vegan means that there are parameters to what it means to be a vegan. It's not vegetarian. It's vegan. Vegans don't have anything to do with ingesting anything that comes from... When was the last time you did a proper cleanse of your intestines? Maybe you do them often. Maybe you've never done one. But when an animal, cheese, eggs, anything like that. And some of the more devout vegans don't own anything that brings harm to an animal, like leather, uh, using products that contribute to animal cruelty, or even riding horses and having certain pets. Now, even people that know very little about veganism know this because there are boundaries to this definition of what a vegan is. There's a spectrum, but there are essential guidelines that would qualify someone as being vegan. Now, if I were to tell you I identify as a vegan, but I'm over here at Chick-fil-A enjoying a chicken sandwich, you might rightfully so be wondering why I identify as a vegan when I'm clearly a living contradiction to the set boundaries that make someone a vegan. This is the same principle that applies not just to Christianity, but to all religions. There are specific beliefs someone must hold to be a Muslim. There are specific beliefs someone must hold to be a Mormon, even non-religious beliefs. There are specific beliefs that somebody must hold to be even an atheist. As with Christianity, there are specific beliefs that one must hold to qualify as someone who's been born again, as the Bible says. These are beliefs that are salvific beliefs, meaning that if someone is to become a Christ follower, they have believed in the doctrines that are essential to salvation. And honestly, the list is pretty small. First step, pretty simple. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. This means that you can't just be a Christian alongside with worshiping other gods. In fact, this was God's number one problem with the Israelites in the Old Testament. Idolatry. They ran after other gods left and right. This literally is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods besides me. In the book of Hosea, God compares it to him being the husband and his bride, his people, keep prostituting themselves to other gods. God is not okay with sharing your heart with another god, just like your spouse would not be okay with sharing you with another person. This is the simple belief that there is only one true God. A created being cannot save you. God became the solution to sin by becoming the sacrifice for us. Nobody else could qualify. Humans have been trying to elevate man and emote God for centuries. You're not God. You can't become God either. Tell your friends. 
second is justification by faith alone, grace alone, through Christ alone. It's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus alone. This, in my experience and in my opinion, is where a lot of religions go wrong. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work so that nobody can boast. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 4, verses 1 through 5 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, if you guys really want to get into a great study about this topic, the book of Romans will slap you in the face with the gospel. Guys, let me just put it to you this way. This is what it looks like when we try to add anything to what Jesus did. It's like, hey, hey, Jesus, hey, I know you're up there on the cross, like, dying. I'm so sorry about that. That looks really uncomfortable. I know you just went to just, like, brutal torture, and you're about to take the sin, you know, past, present, future, you know, for those who would believe and all that stuff. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I just, I just need you to know. Uh, I don't think that this is enough. I think that, like, I have really good works. I do really good things that I can add to what you're doing up there. I mean, I know you're perfect and all, and the veil, you know, is about to be torn to signify uh, the reconciliation of God and man, but I'm, I'm going to go put it back up. Just hang tight. Thanks, Jesus. I just, I'm going to go earn it now. Okay. <laughs> That's literally how we look in my eyes. The thing is, a lot of religions cannot say that you're saved by Jesus' grace or faith alone. They will say that. They will say that, but it's only part of it. The other part of it is you must join their religion and do the works of their religion to be completely saved, to be fully saved. Jesus is only a part of it. Just like I would read a vegan cookbook alone and never come to the conclusion that eating meat is what vegans do, you would never read the Bible alone and ever come out with a theology that concluded a works-based religion. This is the exact opposite of penal substitutionary atonement, which is Jesus taking our place as sinners. The atonement is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. You cannot have the Christian faith without the proper understanding of the atonement that Jesus took our place and he paid the wages for sin in full. So drop the veil and walk away. Now, another caveat that I'm going to add to this that I see a lot of uh, works-based religions do is it's never the Bible alone either. All that a Christian needs to have to know the gospel and the Christian life is in the Bible. When you have somebody who's acting as a prophet or a spokesperson for God in some way that goes against Scripture, then you need to get far, far away from them. <laughs> and not be under any sort of spiritual guidance from them. Third, we have the resurrection, the very thing that made the disciples go from hiding and grieving to rejoicing and proclaiming. This is the defining belief that revolves around the Christian faith. 
If Jesus didn't die and rise again, then everything we believe, our faith, is in vain. Paul even says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He also says in the same chapter that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what separates Christianity from virtually every other belief system in the world. God became flesh. He became his own creation and became the solution for sin himself. To deny the resurrection is to deny the gospel itself. Fourth, very important, faith. This is simple, but probably the hardest for some people. I personally know people that intellectually know these things. They can see that there's a case for Christianity and for the gospel, but they lack the faith to believe. They lack the trust in God to follow him. This is the mold that brings it all together. Scripture says that it's by grace through faith that we are saved. When we believe, the fruits of our beliefs are manifested in repentance and good works, not the other way around. Now, I know that that was a short list, and I know that there are plenty of people that make essential doctrines out of almost everything. I can see you. I see you in the comments section, the keyboard warriors, letting me know what I missed, letting me know what I could have said better. To some people, everybody can be a heretic or a false teacher, but these are the salvific doctrines of Christianity. This is the bucket that we belong in. Also, it's really interesting and beautiful to read early church history about what the church fathers wrote as their doctrine that corresponded with the scriptures. These were the creeds of the early church, and they had to clarify these things because of heretics and false teachers in the church. These false teachings and teachers were causing division by teaching doctrines and ideas that were antithetical to scripture and the gospel. Also, speaking of division, for what it's worth, Paul in Romans 16 is calling out people who are bringing bad theology into the church. In other words, it's not divisive to call out bad theology. It's divisive to teach bad theology. Hopefully this was helpful and educational for you. Let me know what you think in the comments, and be sure to check out the description. Christians, I love you, but if you come to me and tell me that you think the vaccine is the mark of the beast, and you think that getting a chip put in your hand so you can you can access your work computer is the mark of the beast, please don't. I don't even want to hear it. Like, I'm so, so beyond it. Unless this mark is associated with the worship of the beast, right, and his image, then the fact that you can't buy or sell without fill in the blank doesn't impress me that much. In any society, there's always something that's associated with buying and selling a credit card, a digital currency. There's always going to be something, and then there's going to be a group of Christians in that society freaking out about that thing, embarrassing other Christians and making it harder to preach the gospel in that culture. And I, y'all, you need to stop. Why would Jesus say, forgive them, for they know not what they do, if Jesus knew they had to do it to save us at the cross? Here's the idea. Jesus, he knows he has to be crucified. But those who are crucified, he wants his grace to extend to them as well. Yes, the crucifixion had to happen, but it had to happen to save the very people who were crucifying Jesus. It just shows God's love, his patience, his kindness, and it's a very challenging example for us to follow as Christians.
this is again where we're going to conflict with our culture because they're going to be like, if you don't approve of this behavior, I'm going to hate you. I think that you're judgmental and you're weird and rude and angry and you're a horrible person. Like, this is this is the current reaction. And the response is, the question isn't whether I approve of it. The question is whether God approves of it and then whether I want to submit to God's approval or not. And when you make it, it's not about me and you. This is about the creator of the universe and how he said he wants us to live. It's possible that we love things that he hates. We should pay attention to that. Ron Reagan, lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. I'm going to make a prediction that the following will happen in the next three years. Why? Because we are not in a culture war. We are in a God battle. The forces, the ideologies, the worldviews that you see that are driving you bonkers these days are not merely about social change. It's not about fundamentally remaking America. It is about the Tower of Babel kicking God off of his throne. Therefore, if that assessment is right, and it is because I'm a talk show host, it won't be long before atheists, unbelievers insist, we got to get rid of that national motto. You may recall revolution history, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, they wanted the national motto to be out of the many, one, e pluribus unum. It never was codified. 1956, Ike determined it's going to be in God we trust. In 2008, it was just a little gap. President Obama, in his international apology tour, he said that the national motto is e pluribus unum. Found by a creed as old as our founding. Out of many, we are one. Boing. I guess, I guess he just forgot. 2011, Eric Cantor decided we need to ratify and make sure that we all agree in God we trust is the national motto. And that resolution, it wasn't a law, but it wasn't just crossing their fingers, hopeful, wishful thinking. It was a resolution that said in God we trust is the national motto. Because even then, thanks to people like Dan Barker at the Freedom From Religion Foundation, if your God did exist, I would proudly go to hell. They were making efforts to take God off of our coinage. I would like to predict within the next three years, we're going to see a massive run to do it again. And because I'm a Christian and I want to help our atheist friends, I've written some mottos that feel free to adopt these. If you'd like to change the coinage, I have some mottos that atheists really should consider using because, well, I think these, in a pithy fashion, accurately describe your worldview. So here we go, Jimmy. I've got myself our new national motto possibility. I'm ready. In government, we trust. That would be, <laughs> I love myself. Because <laughs> we are a therapeutic society. Our favorite subject is me. How's about this one? This is this is really pithy. Let's sin. Or third world. I'm sorry. Third world. Here we come. I think that's a pretty good one because that's what it seems that they're aiming for. Almighty ISIS. Why not? As long as we're going to be a pagan society, the smartest generation. And related to that, if you don't like that, we could just use as our new national motto, old people are stupid. 
because we think that anybody who was born before us couldn't possibly know as much as we do. The national motto could be, we kill babies and pay for it. And we could also put on it, if we don't like that, we mutilate eight-year-olds who are confused about things. And finally, my offer to you, my atheist friend, if you're thinking about new national mottos, what might they be? How's about, let's just be honest, we're not going to take God off the coinage. Instead, how's about they say, we hate God, because that is what this is about. Happen to receive some emails from some people suggesting there are other national mottos that could replace In God We Trust. This was sent in from a Jonathan. If you can think of a national motto that the atheists would embrace, please leave it in the comments below. These are from Jonathan. Just be yourself, unless you're a Christian. <laughs> Unity, freedom, and justice for most. We believe in choice. Would you like to be canceled, doxxed, or killed? It's a little long, Jonathan, so you might just want to tighten that one up a little bit, but I like it. The wages of Christianity is death, could be the new motto. If Christians go to heaven when they die, then let's kill them now. That's a little, that's a little aggressive, Jonathan. We will decide how to love your neighbor. In U.S., we trust. See what he did there? U.S., in the United States, in us, we trust. Really, or sorry, reality is what you make it unless you owe me money. There you have it. That should be a springboard for you. Please write what you believe should be the atheist national motto. Yeah. 
women are the most popular conservatives. Tucker Carl's rethinking the Christian. But when I asked about why he attends a heretical Episcopalian church, he said, part of it's emotion. Part is we really like the people. Part is that the world I grew up in. Jordan Peterson says he's a Christian. No, you Christian. I suppose the most straightforward answer to that is yes, although I think it's, it's let's leave it at yes. But what he actually believes is really weird. Well, there, there are there are truths other than literal that perhaps are more truthful than even literal truths. Stephen Crowder professes faith in Christ. Jesus, there is no eternal salvation outside of Jesus Christ, and no way to the Father except through him, and him alone. Why? Because he is real. No one else is. Has been, nor ever will. Happy Easter. Brandon Stephen professes Christianity, but denies the Trinity. Jesus did not have to be God to do what he said.
We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes. piece of bread. We act as if the holy word of God is all but dead. All we need to know is right there on the pages. Why are we obsessed with who the guy on stage is? Dance the hottest dance. Get the latest buzzy. You're gonna find out Jesus wasn't very fuzzy, buzzy. You can take the news out. You can keep the flow. The Bible is our tool and we're here to kick it all. Yeah. 
committed to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees, from lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. Their differences cry out, God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. We see what God's love is about There's no type of person that Jesus left out Because Jesus died and rose from the grave All those who trust in the Lord will be saved In the book of Revelation, chapter number 7 The church from all times is gathered in heaven Each tribe and people, language and nation All thanking God for the gift of salvation Together, forever, with saints of all kinds Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine This is exactly what God has designed When God made me and you, let's go Go. Fortress. A mighty fortress is our God. Yeah. 
So I got for Tripitore on with Musa Canchola and I'm gonna go out with Yanti and friends and the VIBOE and bye for now. <laughs>